All right, I want to encourage everyone to turn in their copy of God's Word to the prophet Joel. This brief book, three chapters in English, four in Hebrew, we'll get to that later. Pricks our conscience in a unique way and affords us a unique opportunity to consider God's work in the world around us and our response to it. Joel, chapter 1, reads thus. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The oil, the wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction comes from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field plant, pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, 
and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Wow. And brothers and sisters, guess what? This is the word of the Lord to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you now. Grant that we would have humble hearts, contrite hearts, to contemplate your greatness juxtaposed against our finitude. Lord, grant us that we would seek you in the day of trouble, that we would, in fact, remember that you are sovereign and good. Help us to find our comfort in you. We ask this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. All right, guys, so here we are. Dawn of a new year, a new series through a book that, for many of us, is relatively unfamiliar. The prophet Joel centers around this invasion of locusts, this locust swarm that has happened. And many of you perhaps recall in 2020 the news reports of locust swarms in various parts of East Africa. Locust swarms happen. And as I was reading, um, I was surprised to learn that uh, the largest locust swarm in world history occurred, guess where? Here, in the Midwest, in the 1870s. Uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder of Little House on the Prairie fame, she wrote of it. And, and, and it's incredible, the, the, spe- the species of locust uh, was the Rocky Mountain locust, and no one even to this day really knows what causes locust swarms to happen. And I mean, we have some idea, but, but not concrete, and we don't really know why they just dissipate. But in this case, in the case of the 1870s, where we have lots of written record about, it was a swarm about 1,500 miles by 100 miles deep. And it got so bad that not only were the trees stripped down white, but then the trees themselves were stripped down. They would land on cattle fences and eat the wood fence posts. They would eat the houses made of wood. People would go outside, be swarmed, and the clothes would be consumed. Farmers lit entire fields on fire, hoping that the flame would just burn them up. But when you're talking about a swarm a hundred miles deep, it did nothing. Absolute devastation so that when it was all said and done, the ground looked like it had been swept like a kitchen floor. That's what Laura Ingalls Wilder writes. It's incredible. And then a mere 14 years later, inexplicably, that species of locust appears to have gone out in extinction. Scientists still don't know why. We don't understand the mysterious powers and forces of the cosmos. Calamity happens. Disease, drought, disaster, plague, pestilence, these are realities that continually bite and nip at our heels. We are never far from being brought low by something seemingly small. 
if there was ever any doubt in your mind that that's not the case, 2020 should have laid that to rest where a virus brought this world and this economy low. Calamity happens. But what the problem is, is not just now, but even then, so it doesn't really seem to matter the context in which a person finds themselves, when calamity happens, it does not appear to be a natural response to look and think in terms of what does this mean in terms of what God is doing. There is a reason why he has to kind of, he's proverbially slapping, you know, when someone's in shock, the old conventional wisdom, you got to slap them to wake them up, to get them out of their, out of their panic. These people have just gone through an ordeal, and he's having to kind of shake them to get to their senses so they can contemplate this thing from the vantage point of a spiritual perspective. If it was hard back then, what about now? How often do you consider the calamities that happen, the, the catastrophic events, whether they are agricultural or or weather or disease or political, cultural. How often do you interpret things with an eye towards God and his hand and his work and activity in the world? How do we interpret the goings-on around us? And how do we respond to the goings-on around us? So Joel invites us into this. Now, Joel has a number of complicating factors before we dive in too deep. But these are factors, because of their complexity, that enable us to see that he's not just talking about a one-time situation. He's offering us the opportunity to look at things in our own day. First, we don't know anything about Joel. He kind of descends on the scene without context. His name means Yahweh is God. But other than that, we don't know anything about him. Uh, dating of the book is impossible. John Calvin said, after going over the various hypotheses, that it's good that we can't date the book because it opens up the possibility that this is for every age. There are clues that it could have been this or that it could have been that. We don't really know when this was written. There's references to the temple, so we assume he was a prophet to the southern kingdom, but we don't know, is this something that was written well before the, the, the uh, exile, during the exile, or after the exile, after the temple had been rebuilt? We don't know. And the locusts, is he referencing a human army in the imagery of a locust? Or are the locusts locusts that are then hyperbolically used to illustrate people? We don't really know. But then most complex, most complex is Joel is utterly unique in the prophets for this one thing right here. Every other prophet will catalog a list of sins and say, for these things, judgment is coming. And they will be called to repent of specific things. 
in this book that is utterly absent. People are told, wail, lament, repent, but there's not one sin mentioned. Wail, lament, mourn, cry out, repent, with absolutely no reference to any particular sin. The major theme of this book is the day of the Lord. This concept, the day of the Lord, is repeated five times in this book. Three of the five times it refers to something that has either just happened or is happening now. One time it refers to something that's about to happen. And then a fifth time it refers to something that is yet still far off. So this is very helpful. Because it helps us see that when the scriptures speak of the day of the Lord, it's not necessarily thinking about the eschatological final day of judgment, where the end of the world as we know it happens. Instead, we're invited to see that the day of the Lord refers to any time the Lord shows up in power to make some act of judgment of salvation for his people. So the day of the Lord is more an idea than a date on the calendar. The day of the Lord was long regarded in Hebrew tradition as a day in which God would show up and deal with and defeat the enemies of the people. But Joel puts that on its head. His message is that the day of the Lord has first come upon us. And only later do we see it come upon the Gentiles. And brothers and sisters, Joel is not unique in that. You see, fast forward X amount of time and you get to the Apostle Peter, who wrote in chapter 4 of his first epistle, That the end of all things is at hand. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of our God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So the Old Testament book of Joel opened their eyes. And that is brought home with greater clarity in the New Testament. But the point is this. Do not think that the day of the Lord is something that happens to the bad guys. God begins with judgment of his people. He is the great purifier, winnowing the shaft from the wheat. And he does this with great consistency in both Testaments. Now this passage, if nothing else, it is a call. It is a call to get our attention. It is a call to shake us by the shoulders. Wake up! Wake up! Do not not interpret the events going on around you. Wake up! And cry out. And mourn and lament. Because if judgment begins with the household of God, what is there for anyone else? And so, 
this passage includes at least three calls. First is a call to remember. In verses 17, two, I'm sorry, in verses 2 through 14, it's the heart of this passage. That's what, 13 verses? Am I, am I counting them right? 12? Whatever. 17, that's the number I know, 17 imperatives. He is causing people to remember what has gone on around them. He uses graphic, very picturesque language. He, he tells even the drunkards to mourn for their wine because it has been, uh, it has been pulled from their very mouths. You, you, you have the image in your mind right now. They're going to toss back a drink and like someone rips the glass right out of their hand. That's how suddenly, that's how abruptly this disaster has come upon them. And, and people want to forget. People do not like repeating and recounting the significant events of the day. We are prone to forgetting. But remembering is essential for meeting out and understanding the significance. And so they're told to remember and tell their children and their children and their children after them. Because this is surely a big day. Some things need to be remembered. Some things need to be recollected. And it's not just for our value in learning lessons. Some things need to be remembered precisely because they are powerful moments of either glory or shame or harm. And we see later in this book that every ounce of misery that gets inflicted by the, on the people by other people, every ounce gets meted back. Now, now listen, this, this first chapter is not, is not so much about hope. It's not. It's about despair. A lot of stuff in life happens to you and you want to despair. You don't have to be quick. You don't have to immediately downplay the badness of what has happened. And run straight to, oh, it's okay. No. Bad stuff has happened. You matter. That's why it's important for them. These people matter. And what has happened to them matters. So remember it. Because the Lord remembers it. And the Lord will deal it back. So we are called to remember. And based out of that remembrance of what has transpired we are given 17 imperatives to mourn lament to experience the real emotions of loss and sadness and heartbreak let me say it very clear it is not wrong for you to be angry and heartbroken when something terrible happens. Your emotions are real. And in them, we are not called to deny them or suppress them. We are called to turn them and to call out to God with them. We're going to say more in a little bit about why it is they're told to repent without being told what it is they need to repent of. We're going to come back to that, okay? But out of the remembrance 
comes real emotions that we are to take to the Lord. That is the bottom line of what he's saying here when he's telling people to lament and mourn. Their very fellowship with the Lord appears to be threatened by the fact that these sacrifices are cut off. And if our only comfort in life and death is our fellowship with God, then then how should we respond when it appears that the possibility of fellowship is broken? So your emotions are real. Turn them to the Lord. But then, we're not just called to remember the events as as raw facts. We We are called to consider their significance. And we see this in verses 15 through 18. And verse 15 is the hinge. When he says, he, he considers the fact of this locust plague, this locust swarm that has just consumed all the stuff of the land. And he says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Okay, throughout this text, Joel consistently portrays the locust plague as an act of God, consistently. He in no way, at no time, entertains the idea that this locust plague is simply one of those things that happen. You know, stuff happens, and we just have to deal with it. It's not viewed as a natural event the way we're prone to viewing natural events as just devoid of any divine significance. No, He understands, and he is echoed by other prophets, but he understands that disasters happen because God chooses for them to happen. For Joel, the locust plague was an act of God in the most literal sense. There are no accidents because it's God, not fate, that governs nature. God governs. And so disasters like this, are attributed to the hand of an almighty God. Wow. When confronted with calamity of various kinds, there's a number of approaches people take. First, there's that atheistic framework that says everything is accidental because there is nothing controlling anything. It's just all random happen chance, and just random forces collide and stuff happens. Well, that's not a viable option for a Christian because we don't believe that things just happen randomly. There is an accidental explanation within a Christian framework, though. It asserts that God is powerful and that he's good, but that he's built natural laws into the system that basically run and operate, and he steps in every now and then. But just because something bad happens doesn't mean that God has been actively involved in it. Another approach, and I think this is really, really more common than we like to say, is the, what I would just call the the Job's three friends approach, which is this. Bad stuff happens to bad people. Good stuff happens to good people. So if something bad happens, it's obvious that you have sinned, and that's And that's the message of Job's three friends. I've just saved you a a lot of time reading the book of Job. No, you need to read the book of Job because because they get a lot of bad rap when people summarize, like I just did, 
because they're made out to be like they're saying crazy things and they're not. They're guilty of absolutizing general truth. Is it not a general truth in scripture that you reap what you sow? Isn't that, isn't that a Bible saying? So they make an absolute equivalent correspondence. If something good happens to you, it's because you are righteous. If something bad happens to you, it's because you're guilty. And we all fall into this very easily. The notion that only especially evil people suffer is, quite frankly, the safe space of the self-righteous and the smug. It contradicts the whole of Scripture and human experience. Some people like to attribute all these kind of things to the devil. It's the devil that brought in those locusts. It's the devil that unleashed COVID-19, and so it just needs to be rebuked. It's true that Scripture attributes some things to the devil, but it's simultaneously true that Scripture unequivocally shows the devil to operate under the authority of God. He is not a loose cannon doing as he wishes. Every single view there fails for one reason or another. We have to recognize that Scripture, whatever our hearts may be feeling when bad things happen, when things like COVID, when things like the riots through the summer, when things like the events of last week, and, and, and whatever else is going on, the Bible does not present God as simply a passive observer in human affairs who merely permits trouble in the world. Amos chapter 3 verse 6 will not permit that. Some of you know Amos chapter 3 verse 6. What does it say? When disaster comes to a city, have I not caused it? So when Joel looks upon a swarm of locusts that have come and just wreaked devastation on his country, economically, socially, religiously, just devastation. He didn't see it the work of the devil. He didn't see random bad luck. He saw the active involvement of a good, but all-powerful and sovereign God. In fact, he goes so far as to call the locusts the army of God, the way that other prophets refer to the Babylonian army as the Lord's army. These are heavy things for us. God, for his own purposes, so governs the forces of this world, impersonal Elemental aspects like weather, impersonal but living forces like animals, and indeed humans. It is the Lord who appoints and the Lord who deposes kings. He sets up and he throws down kingdoms with all of the implied commotion that that entails. God, for his own purposes, so directs the forces of this world 
and the course of history that it goes where he directs it. So Christian, you cannot take an accidental view of God's role in history. It is true that God has ordered natural laws, the law of gravity, etc. But God is sovereign, and he works in and through and with those things, not just sitting back. I want to propose to you that this passage is calling us to consider the day of the Lord and God's active involvement in history, even in the calamities of life, to see that God is doing a work of grace that we just don't understand. We are limited by our small, finite point of view and perspective. We do not have the field of vision necessary to see all that God is doing. And so we are called to walk in trust, even when our little piece of the pie seems to be in the middle of absolute chaos. I've told the story before. It was life-changing for me. Afghanistan, 2007, I get to go to the division talk, uh, to the division uh, command post. Um, I've been out to these little fire bases, and, and military people and infantry people and fire bases love to gripe about how stupid the senior brass is. You love it. They love it. Because what we're doing here is pointless. It's dumb. It's stupid. Blah, 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 blah. They have their head in the sand. Blah, blah, blah. I go to the talk, and I walk in, and I see the whole battle space played out. And all of a sudden, from that much loftier perspective, I'm able to see that what that little outpost is doing is actually contributing to creating a funnel where they have to move over here. Suddenly, I was able to see it from a perspective that enabled me to make sense. Now, brothers and sisters, God isn't giving us the perspective right now. We don't have that 30,000-foot perspective, but he wants us to know that it's there. And he's doing a work of grace to redeem a people for himself, to make all things new and right. And which is why, ultimately, in view of a sovereign God, who rules and governs this world as he sees fit, who sets up and throws down, who kills and makes alive. We are called to see the hand of God and acknowledging both his sovereignty and his benevolent mercy. We are called thirdly and finally to cry out to him, which is the last two verses. If you read this chapter again, you'll see that from verse 1 through 18, it's all third person. Joel is saying what other people need to do. Ministers do this. Drunkards do that. Young people do this. Elders do that. He's, he's shooting out commands. But now in verse 19, he turns it first person. To you, O Lord, do I cry out. Cry out in faith. This affirmation of God's sovereign and merciful disposition is essential when the going gets rough. God hasn't just given us Joel. He's given us Genesis through Revelation. So he's given us great promises. We have a, an inside look, so to speak, as to what he's doing. 
And so we are invited, like the prophets of old, like Joel here, like Habakkuk, who famously and beautifully proclaims that whether the fig tree fails, whether the mountains crumble into the sea, yet he will trust. So brothers and sisters, you're not called to deny the badness of what happens when bad stuff happens. You're not called to ignore it or act stoic. Cry out to God because he loves you and he cares for you. Resist thinking that just because something bad happens, you have done something egregious. But as this call to repentance points out, this general repentance, we should have a contrite and broken heart at all times, which is sensitive to the fact that I am unholy. And as the Gospels teach us, there are far worse things that can happen to a person than simply catastrophe. And to the extent that any form of judgment is revealed against the world, it's, it's a foretaste of what awaits those who rebel. And, and in my wickedness, that's what I deserve. And so how can I not repent of my general unworthiness in the light of it? But at the same time, he is good and merciful to his children. And he stores up all their sufferings will pay it back. So, I don't know the bad stuff you're going through. I know some of the bad stuff that's at least happening in the world around you. Cry out to God. This isn't just happening. God is at work. It's our job to trust and to walk in faith. And indeed, to warn perhaps, you think this is bad? This is nothing that awaits those who do not repent. So brothers and sisters, this is the introduction to the book of Joel. Let's pray.